This morning's uh, talk is part of what we've come to call Earth Care Week. At a gathering, I think in the summertime, about two years ago, of uh, Insight Meditation Teachers, really international meeting, uh, we agreed. We had actually had focus during those meetings on two large-scale systemic issues. Uh, one was uh, climate change, and the other, the other one was racism. And we wanted to bring our uh, practice to these areas. And towards that end, there were actually a lot of things set in motion. One of them was, was an agreement to have uh, the first week in October be called uh, Earth Care Week. And in different communities, people would be in their own ways addressing issues that connect our practice to the uh, concerns of the earth. And I'm going to do that uh, in a pretty broad way. Uh, I've called my talk, uh, I, I gave a name for it like a month and a half ago before I knew what I was going to talk about. And then I decided I'd better have a talk that was like the title. <laughs> so the title is The Urgency of Now, Connecting Inner and Outer Transformation. And I want to explore a few different aspects of that. Uh, you know, take us through a few different steps, among them looking at some of the challenges of, the, of our time, both personal and more collective, um, looking at, uh, in some ways, how a new kind of sp spiritual practitioner, we might even say a new kind of human, is necessary one who connects in a deep way inner work with response to the needs of the world. And I'll, I'll talk about that. And then I'll particularly ask if that vision is compelling, what's our training? What's our curriculum? How do we learn? What capacities are necessary to make that connection? How do we do it? And then uh, I'll finish by just inviting us each individually to see uh, how this may resonate with you and what your own uh, personal steps might be. So I wanted to start before, before going into some of the uh, challenges of our time by first inviting us to reflect on something that we love or appreciate about the earth or in our lives, could be anything. And see if you can formulate that in a sentence. It might be, if I do this right now, I would say, I really love to be with the redwood tree in my backyard. Just something that you appreciate or really love. It could be about a person, about you know, uh, Someone in your family could be about anything. Really, could be I love. I love meditation. Whatever it is, so just reflect on that for a moment. And then let me invite just a few people, maybe just to say it in in one sentence. Something that you love, appreciate, and, and I'll I'll repeat them, please. I love walking out my back door and eating. Cherry tomatoes fresh off the vine. I love walking out my back door and eating cherry tomatoes ripe off the vine. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Please. I love starting my base swim in the dark and swimming into the sunrise. I love starting my base swim in the dark and swimming into the sunrise. Yeah, just mm. very ordinary, beautiful, power, powerful. Yeah. Please, yeah. I love when my grandchildren come to say good morning to me. I love when my grandchildren come to say good morning to me. Maybe one or two more. I love walking with my dog in the hills. I love walking with my dog in the hills. Please. 
I love the yellow of the dandelions peeking through the concrete in the city of Oakland. I love the <laughs> yellow of the dandelions peeking through the concrete in the city of Oakland. Yeah, very, very, very clear. Yeah. The last one, yeah. I love hiking in the redwoods. I love hiking in the redwoods. Yeah. It's important to stay with these, to stay with these appreciations, what we love. And there's also, I'm going to do, do a segue, there's, we also have, there are a lot of challenges um, in our world right now, as we know. Challenges to what we love, challenges to the continuation of a stable world. I think we know that. Um, and I, I was uh, drawn to this phrase uh, that comes from uh, Dr. King, the urgency of now. We can feel that urgency of now. I, I was thinking of that. Before I was thinking of it, I was thinking of another reflection, a little more humorous uh, reference to the now, which was, uh, came from uh, Pooh and Piglet. <laughs> and Pooh and Piglet are walking down the road, and I think uh, Piglet asks Pooh, uh, what day is it? And Pooh says, it's today. And Piglet says, oh, my favorite day. <laughs> and Dr. King was talking about a different kind of now. But he, he, he used this phrase a, a number of times. And he used it in the well-known I Have a Dream speech. He talked about the fierce urgency of now. And I, that really resonated with me when I was thinking of, the, of our present time. Uh, this is what he said right at the Washington Monument. And um, my mom is here. She, you were at that speech. You were like, what? You said like 20 feet away? Something like that. Yeah. And so see if this has memories come back. Um, we have come to this hallowed spot. This is the, the monument, the Lincoln, Lincoln Memorial. We have come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation. So he was addressing, obviously, uh, racism and related issues, to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. So that was 1963. And I think we can agree that there's, there's uh, quite a fierce urgency of now, and we probably would name five or eight or ten different issues. They seem very, they seem very thick, you know. So I was just going down a list. You know, we have wars and violence you know, that are, seem uh, overwhelming at times and, and for many even hard to understand. You know, we have uh, wars and violence and particularly in uh, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, terrorism, violence being still very much used as a way to deal with conflicts. <coughs> we have the continuing um, impact uh, from the long centuries of slavery and Jim Crow. You know, there was um, a New York Times uh, survey that some of you may have seen at the end of July. Let me see where that is. And in that survey, uh, nearly six in 10 Americans, including heavy majorities of both whites and blacks, think race relations are generally bad, and four in 10 think the situation is getting worse. You know, so there's a lot there. There's a lot on in that level. There are all sorts of questions you know, about uh, civil liberties, right? Surveillance, you know, the fact that you know, we had what? We've had uh, 
many, many years of torture and no one's been accountable. Right? Yeah, of course, we're not the only country, but, but you know, that you know, very, very strong issues of civil liberties and even whether democracy can survive in a healthy way with the impact of money on the political process, the uh, levels of fear that are often present, fear and scapegoating and so forth. You know, we can, again, we can talk to multiple, multiple areas. The, the divide between rich and poor increasing in this country and very strong, strongly developing with globalization. The, the well-known sociologist Robert Bellis said actually the divide between rich and poor, he said this about 15 years ago, is the main ethical issue of our time. You know. And there, you know, and there are personal dimensions to a lot of these issues, you know, challenges of meaningful work uh, as, you know, um, there have been major changes in work in the last 15 or 20 years. And full-time jobs aren't what they used to be, and there are not as many of them, right? And there are all sorts of issues related to that. There are challenges with relationships, you know, still very high divorce rates and so forth. And there's also this, as we know, this large issue of climate change, which I wanted to give a little bit of attention to. Last year I did a talk with PowerPoint called The Four Noble Truths of Climate Change for Earth Care Week. And I won't go into as much detail as I did there, which was entirely focused, but just to name the fact that, uh, you know, the, the current tendencies, if they are unabated, will make it very hard for civilization to continue. I think I'll say a lot of things that people know, but just to remind us of these, uh, there's a very huge gap between what we know scientifically and the political responses and the responses of governments. Very, very large gap. Um, we know that the increase of carbon dioxide, which is correlated with temperature, has been unprecedented in the last 300 years. We know that the number of parts of carbon per million for 10,000 years was stable. And in the last 300 years has been unstable and that there's been a very rapid increase even in the last 20 or 30 years, particularly since World War II, to the point where we are over 400 parts per million. It was 200 to 280 parts per million for 10,000 years. Right? And um, as is well known, a lot of people say 350 is the limit for really stability of the climate. You know, so in this wake, uh, some people are saying we can't have more than an increase of two degrees Celsius. You know, that's the politically agreed upon limit, which a lot of people think would actually be, uh, still be connected with significant disasters. And we've already raised the temperature one degree Celsius. And raising it two degrees Celsius is connected with, you know, um, Crop failures, uh, all the obvious, you know, storms, uh, coastal flooding, and so forth, uh, droughts, shortages of water in the uh, in the mid latitudes, you know, and uh, all sorts of all sorts of challenges, um, increased diseases because of a lot of the factors for people, and there also, I think, as people know, the, all these issues are interrelated that there are major climate justice issues that the people who are most affected are people in Africa and uh, parts of Asia, who of course had nothing to do with the problems in the first place, right? And uh, Oxfam International says that 85% um, of those who die related to climate change are women. The question is why I think I think it's because of the impact, you know, first of all, in the countries in Africa and in Asia. And I think my my sense would be that it's it has to do with the um, I guess the vulnerability in those uh, in those populations. Yeah. So I don't know a full answer to that, but that that is that is a, a, 
a statistic. And you know, one, one way of summarizing all of this uh, comes from Bill McKibben. There was an essay two years ago in Rolling Stone, some of you know, called, I think, Global Climate Change is Terrifying New Math. Do you, how many of you know that essay? Yeah, it's, it's on, you can get it on the web. And he summarized all this really uh, in a very clear way. He said, uh, there are three numbers. The first is two degrees Celsius. As I mentioned, that's the kind of the politi politically agreed upon limit. And he said the second number is the number of tons of um, uh, carbon dioxide that will be released into the atmosphere if we stay under two degrees Celsius. And, and that number is 565 gigatons of carbon dioxide would be released into the atmosphere. That is the upper limit. And then he, then he analyzed the uh, amount of carbon uh, that would be released into the atmosphere according to the business plans of the fossil fuel companies and the, the countries which are, um, you know, producing, uh, producing carbon dioxide and releasing fuels, the fossil fuels, you know, countries like Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, and so forth. And according to their businesses are founded on actually releasing uh, 2,800 gigatons. In other words, five times the limit that is actually still very, very difficult. So that's, so you see the, all this then comes up to, again, on to the, uh, the challenges of the economic system. So these are all very much interrelated. You see race and climate change and the economics. Now, I wasn't intending to just have us be depressed this morning. <laughs> but for me, it's hard to say these things. And for you, it's probably hard to listen to them. Right? It's hard in some ways, even if we know that there is a reality. What are, what are, our, what are our initial reactions as we hear this, or maybe some of you have sat with this for a while, what are our, what are our reactions? And again, if you can maybe say it in one sentence, or even one word. Powerlessness. Huh? Mm -hmm. Powerlessness, yeah. Kind of helplessness. How many can relate to that? Mm -hmm. yeah. Frustration. Frustration, yeah. Sadness. Sadness. Anger. Anger, yeah. Any other emotions or just reflections or thoughts? Fear. Fear, yeah. Despair. Despair. How many also might feel something like overwhelm at times? You know, just with all of this. Or, you know, one that I saw in my life. I'm really busy as it is, and I have to deal with that. Right? So th this is all there, right? This is all, this is all part of the background. And, you know, um, where I want to go with this is to say that, um, the response to all these issues, I think, has to be quite profound. And one way of looking at what is called for, I think, is to say, I use the language almost like a new kind of human, a new kind of, a new kind of spiritual practitioner uh, needs to be, be born or trained or come into uh, greater, um, greater numbers, you know. And uh, we can call this, this uh, being by many names. We can talk about this one as someone who really deeply connects inner and outer transformation. We can talk about a transformational change agent. That's the language some people use. We can talk about the resurgence of the bodhisattva, you know, a new kind of bodhisattva. But some, uh, a new kind of uh, person with capacities to actually very skillfully navigate the very challenging territory internally as well as externally. And that's what I want to focus on for the rest of the time. So I took a sum through these issues, but I want to actually um, point towards what I find actually hopeful, that I think this new kind of being, and um, 
there are many of this new kind of being sitting in this hall right now. You can look around. <laughs> uh, but that this new kind of being, and, and, and many of us need further training and further development and further expression, but something, something new is being called for. It's new and it's also very old because it's been an ancient archetype of the one who would go to the depths of inner spiritual practice, but also respond to the world. You know, we have the Jewish prophets, we have Jesus, we have uh, more recently Gandhi or King or liberation theology. And we can also go way back to see that indigenous traditions were often organized around that archetype. And yet we need, we need to learn from those approaches, but also, in a sense, something new wants to be born. Something new wants to come into being. And in a way, this is, for, for many of us, this is uh, a call to shift our practice somewhat. For many of us, uh, the practice, understandably initially, may be about developing greater peace, greater calm, and so forth. Um, this is from uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi. This is uh, uh, one of the great translators of uh, the Pali Canon, uh, American monk who spent many years in Asia. And he wrote a very interesting essay around, along these lines in 2007. It had these lines in it. It seems to me that we Western Buddhists tend to dwell in a cognitive space that defines the first noble truth largely against the background of our middle-class lifestyles. As the gnawing of discontent, the ennui of oversatiation, the pain of unfulfilling relationships, or with the Baudha Buddhist theory is bondage to the round of rebirths. Too often I feel our focus on these aspects of dukkha has made us oblivious to the vast catastrophic suffering that daily overwhelm three-fourths of the world's population. You know, horror, horror to the levels of suffering in our own society. And there, there's a way that I think it's very understandable and sort of uh, quite wonderful to develop that deeper peace. And I think it's really an initial phase or several phases of practice to really make this real in one's life. You know? But there's a certain point where that is stabilized and we might be able to turn outward more and really from that base start connecting with responding to the needs of the world. And again, I think it's, there's a call to shift our practice. Uh, the poet Gary Snyder said it very beautifully, something like this, uh, about 50 years ago, quite amazing, 1964. This is what he said, very, very prophetic. And he was actually mostly uh, not so much talking about Western practitioners, but about Asian practitioners. He said this, historically, Buddhist philosophers have failed to analyze out the degree to which ignorance and suffering are caused or encouraged by social factors, considering fear and desire to be given facts of the human condition. Institutional Buddhism, and he's mostly referring to Asia, has been conspicuously ready to accept or ignore the inequalities and tyrannies of whatever political system it found itself under. The mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic self-void. We need both. They are both contained in the traditional three aspects of the Dharma path, wisdom, prajna, meditation, dhyana, and morality, sila. Wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind of love, and clarity that lies beneath one's own ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. Meditation is going into the mind to see this for yourself over and over again until it becomes the mind you live in. Morality is bringing it back out in the way you live through personal example and responsible action, ultimately towards the true community of all beings. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Fifty years ago. Yeah that we need both of, these, both of these aspects. And again, we find this in so many traditions with the, think of the Jewish prophets who are wanting to make that, uh, make that connection. Um, 
I looked up some. This is what uh, this is from Isaiah. Again, this is from uh, almost twenty, probably twenty-five hundred years ago. All are greedy for profit and chase after the bribes. This is Isaiah. Once integrity lived there, but now there are only assassins. He said, and so they again were giving social critique, but also connecting it with that, with the, with the inner life. Or we can think of Jesus, again, a primary example, and very much understood as in the tradition of the Jewish prophets. Uh, Andrew Harvey said this of Jesus, the life and work of Jesus combines the deepest mystical absorption in the divine with the most absolute and selfless work for justice and compassion in the world. Right? So there's, there's a vision there. Gandhi said this, I could not be living a religious life unless I identified myself with the whole of humanity. I could not do this unless I took part in politics. The whole gamut of human activities today is an indivisible whole. You cannot divide social, economic, political, and purely religious or spiritual work into watertight compartments. And then we have the uh, wonderful example of the bodhisattva in Buddhist tradition. Originally, the bodhisattva referred to the Buddha in his earlier lives, developing the capacities that would lead him to be fully awakened. And in Mahayana tradition, the bodhisattva became this beautiful archetypal figure. We have one just to my right, the bodhisattva who has a thousand arms. Each arm has an eye to see clearly and to know what's happening, and then a thousand arms to act and respond. We have Kuan Yin in the back, the great bodhisattva of compassion, she who hears the cries of the world. We have this marvelous tradition. Um, in the Zen tradition, one makes a vow to help in this way. And one says, people say every day, living beings are infinite, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. And very, very wonderful image from the 8th century Shantideva says, may I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road, for those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. And so there's this training traditionally to be a bodhisattva, to really combine that uh, deep inner work with helping. And traditionally, one would cultivate qualities of generosity and ethics and wisdom, mindfulness, equanimity, loving kindness, and so forth. This was the training of the traditional bodhisattva. And I've been asking for a long time, what is the uh, training of the contemporary bodhisattva? And that's what I want to talk about now. This is the training. If, if any of this calls to you, even if there's that sense of, oh my gosh, this is a lot, or oh my gosh, or oh my gosh, or oh my gosh, <laughs> um, that there, there's a training. I've been interested in what are the aspects of this training, of what we might, David Loy talks about the need to develop a new bodhisattva. David Loy is a friend with whom uh, I've taught retreats sometimes here at Spirit Rock quite a few times in the last five years. And uh, he says there's this, there's this calling for the new bodhisattva. And I've sometimes asked, what would the training or the, be for the new bodhisattva? And again, see if this resonates with you, some of, these, some of these trainings. I've been interested in what are the qualities of that training. And I've thought sometimes of developing a bodhisattva school. <laughs> and and uh, I've, I've been involved with a number of training programs where we've actually done this and developed trainings. And uh, I was hopeful that one of the last ones was called the Path of Engagement Training here at Spirit Rock. And I was originally wanting to call it the Bodhisattva School. And when we were planning it, my father would always ask, how's the BS doing? <laughs> <laughs> So the, the BS came into existence as another name. The, we called it the, the path of engagement. But, but there's, um, th think, of, think of the qualities needed 
And you know, this, I'm going to name a number of qualities which seem to be very crucial for the training of someone who wants to um, really be able to engage and respond to the needs of the world. And I think that is many of us. You know? And there may be further training that we need. We have actually already had a lot of the training we need. Because what I'm going to be suggesting is there's a way that we need the training that is both inner and that is also related to being skillful with responding in an outward way. Some combination of the inner and the outer has never really existed on a large scale. And I think that's what's being called for. I, I, I use the language almost like a new kind of human is being called for to respond to these very acute needs. And again, we've had versions of it, versions of this with the, uh, again, going back way in history or more recently with the, maybe the civil rights movement or the Gandhian movement and so forth. So here are the qualities. Here are the qualities to be developed. Again, you'll, you'll, you'll hear that you've already been developing a lot of them. So you're, you can enter the Bodhisattva school not at the beginning. Okay. So here, so the first one is I think there has to be a, a really a depth of spiritual practice, a depth and a regularity of spiritual practice. Another way we could say that is a depth of wisdom and compassion. I think we have to touch some of those depths where we develop the heart, where we develop the mind, where we know in a sense that we are all interconnected, where we've worked through large amounts of our conditioning. I actually think we need a better ways to work through some of our forms of social conditioning. I've been very interested in the last few years in helping to develop ways of working with the conditioning around race. It's very thick, right? And how do we do that? We don't know so well, but a lot of people are exploring that. Or just the conditioning of being a consumer. The social conditioning, we could add, of course, gender, sexual orientation, and so forth. But we need to cut deeply through that conditioning. And we need to touch a lot of the traditional uh, levels of insight and awakening that can really sustain us. That really, in, in Gary Snyder's language, that was touching the mind of love. We could say the mind of wisdom, love, compassion, over and over again. And this actually ultimately gives us quite a bit of faith, even when we're with difficulties. If we know that over and over again, bad news is not going to discourage us in the same way. Because we know in a sense that the evolutionary journey of the human is towards awakening. And we know that in our own guts. And some temporary major social problems don't knock us off of our equanimity. Or maybe they don't, or maybe they knock us off, but we come back more quickly. Because they're, they're, so we need that depth of spiritual practice really to know more and more deeply who we are. When we know that, there's some solidity, there's some unshakability that can be there. And you know, when I, for this book, The Engaged Spiritual Life, I did interviews with a lot of um, spiritually grounded uh, activists. And there was something like that quality of equanimity with them. They could be with a lot of ups and downs. And I think we need that depth of spiritual practice to, to um, have that, and a regularity of practice. You know, I was also thinking from having taught uh, yesterday and the day before on the Brahma Vihara, uh, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Of course, this would be part of the training. <laughs> you know, that we develop in these qualities and we keep expanding of them, you know. And we remember that the horizon of loving-kindness practice is all beings. It's radical. There's a radical move there which is actually fully appropriate to the needs of our times, where we move beyond being focused exclusively with our circles of near and dear, where we have more sense of connection and empathy with what might be happening elsewhere. And this is hard, right? This is hard in multiple levels. But the metta practice clearly has that as a horizon. This is from the metta sutta 2,500, 2,600 years ago. Whatever living beings there may be, 
whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away. You hear that? Those living near and far away, those born and to be born. So Joanna Macy on Monday night, some of you heard her, she talked she talks very much about keeping future beings in our horizon. So metta practice does that. And the last line was may those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. That quality of bringing love. Uh, Dr. King said it this way, this call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is really a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all humans. That was said about 50 years ago. And there's the development of compassion, you know, and again, it, it can take some extra effort. I, I was remembering, sometimes it takes that lived connection. I remembered how in 1991, before the fall of the Soviet Union, I spent uh, a month in the former Soviet Union and I met with a lot of people. And I was right in the middle of helping to guide a week-long gathering of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship in 1991 when the attempted coup happened um, in the Soviet Union. And it was so different how I was responding because I had just been with people. I knew individuals. You know, somehow we need to make those connections which make the sense of empathy real. And I could really feel like I wanted to respond and actually did so in different ways. So how do we cultivate that sense of compassion outside of our narrow circles? Not easy, right? You know, and, and I think we need all sorts of creativity for this. This is what Michelle Alexander said about the issue of race. She sees it in, as an issue of compassion. And Michelle Alexander is the author who is the author of the New Jim Crow, some of you know, which talks about how with mass incarceration, there's been almost like a, a repetition of Jim Crow where large numbers of particularly African-American men are disenfranchised and have very great difficulties finding a job. She said, it is this failure to care, to really care across color lines that lies at the core of the system of control in every social caste system that has existed in the United States or elsewhere. So we develop in compassion. And the third of the Brahmagihara is joy. I've tended to emphasize more the difficult news and I actually, I shouldn't have done this. I, I had a section here which was also listing the good news, and I skipped over it. I have to go back. And so, because the, the, it's not just the negative, but there's also all sorts of ways that the positive are developing, all sorts of positive developments occurring that we could point to. And, um, okay, let me find where that is in my notes. Um, just the rebirth of spirituality. Spirituality was not very central, certainly in the United States, to mainstream religion for centuries. There's been a rebirth of spirituality which is profound, which gives a lot of cause for hope, right? And it's, expressed, it's being expressed in all sorts of ways. There's been a, a obviously, around issues like gender, sexual orientation, uh, physical ability, all, there's been revolution in that, which brings um, within the circle of care people who um, have received unequal treatment, right? And that's happened very, very quickly, you know? Um, there's been a radical revolution in how we understand the relation of mind and body and heart. We're all part of that. You know? We're all part of that. And this is this is part of the inner expression that will find outer expression. You know, all of what I'm mentioning, it's really important to know that, that what we're doing in an inner way is the inner expression. And now we have to find ways to let it get bigger because when that finds full expression, the world will be different. You can look back at various kinds of history and can see that. Do you need this right now, or at the end? Uh, there's somebody that wait. Pending. Okay. The, thank, yeah. thank you. We interrupt this talk <laughs> to make a public service announcement. 
If anyone has a blue Prius plate be beginning 7GO, please move your car. Someone who is um, in front of you is trying to leave. We now return. <laughs> so I was going through the positive expressions, and it's really good to remember these. I'm sorry I skipped over it before. There, there, there are you know, new models of what it means to be male or female and to have close relationships, a lot of new models. There are new models of authority and organization that are going through all sorts of organizations. People experimenting more collaborative models of leadership, organization, and so forth that are very much related to these changes. There's the global justice movement. Um, there's, there are different global uh, organizations like the criminal, International Criminal Court, which are having major effects. There, of course, there's the internet in the sense of vast interconnection. Interesting that oppressive regimes focus on suppressing the internet very often, right? Very interesting. Um, and there's, a, there's been a deep rebirth of the desire to connect with the earth and have a sustainable relation there. These are all the very positive qualities. So that's, again, continuing that as part of this, part of this development. So we develop, but we have to develop this uh, joy. You know, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said, suffering is not enough. That anyone who's interested in dealing with the issues of the world or even just trying to stay sane and deal with your family, I remember, I was living in Germany for a year, and I was living sometimes with the family, and uh, you know, I was socially active then, and the mother said, you're trying to change the world. It's hard enough to live with my husband. <laughs> you know, so that is a reality check. <laughs> uh, but there, there's this uh, uh, need to have joy, you know, and there, you know, joy and being in contact with beauty is an antidote to fear. An interesting metta practice is also an antidote to fear. So there's also this quality of equanimity and balance, which is such a fruit of our practice, so crucial for anyone who's going to stay with and deal with these issues. You know, and the intersection of equanimity and compassion, and the intersection of all of these different qualities. There's another capacity that I think is very important, which is the ability to look at the world through spiritual eyes to have a spiritually mediated way of understanding the world. This is a capacity which I think is in a very young place. We don't have good ways to do that. You know, different people are, are trying, like David Loy, again, a wonderful author. He lets us, uh, he guides us to look at the world and see where in our institutions there is institutionalized greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, and I, I remember a clipping that I took. I like to take clippings from the paper. I remember someone said, um, uh, uh, describing Wall Street, we have two kinds of cycles here. One kind of cycle is greed, and the other kind of cycle is fear. <laughs> right? People don't usually say that, right? Uh, you know, about the economic system. But that, that was very, because this, this was someone who was commenting on what, uh, you know, a time when the fear cycle was there. And so we, how, do we, how do we look at the world and see that the problems of the world are, in significant part, problems of who we think we are. They're connected with our inner work. That's why when we do the inner work and it gets to a certain level, the world changes. Many people have said that over the centuries. When the inner sense of things shifts, the world shifts. And of course, we have to um, help that along. Uh, Shanti Deva in the 8th century said, the entire world is disturbed by insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. Right? Right. And so we can, we can look and see how you know, all of our issues, whether it's race or climate change, there's an inner dimension to it. There's an inner dimension uh, as well as an outer dimension. How do we see that connection between the outer causes of these issues and the inner causes, which can be there maybe in greed and wanting to, you know, collective greed and wanting to keep a certain standard of living, a certain comfort level, and so forth. Uh, you know, and so I, I won't go so much into that. You know, I, I think we talked about that a lot um, 
in that earlier talk on climate change. So we also need all sorts of skills to work uh, socially. You know, I, and I think of some very foundational skills. I teach a lot on mindful communication and wise speech and the capacity to really speak with understanding and to develop empathy. And you know, I think of being at a conference called Spiritual Activism and asking people, I was doing a workshop, and I asked people, what do you think is most needed in your organizations? And they said, we don't treat each other very well. We have a lot of anger that we act out on each other. We bicker, and we have a lot of conflict in our organizations, and it makes us way less effective. Isn't that calling for mindful communication, mindfulness, compassion, empathy? It's not there in a lot of the organizations. You see how something new is being called for, right? That was what they said. You know, so we need training in wise speech, in um, how to be skillful with different dimensions of diversity. We need that training in looking at our own inner conditioning around all the multiple forms of hierarchy and oppression. We need to, we need to look at that. We need uh, skill in being able to deal with conflict. One of the areas that I, when I did the training called the path of engagement, one of the areas that we didn't give sufficient attention to was skill in being able to be with conflict and difficult emotions. You know, that this is really central. And we have a lot of that training, particularly with difficult emotions. But the new bodhisattva needs training in being skillful with conflict, being comfortable with conflict, and being really masterful with working with difficult emotions both in oneself and one other. And you see how our practice helps with that, right? We're all training for that. And we can add in community organizing, nonviolent direct action, and sustainability practices. So you see, it is almost like a, a curriculum for a university, isn't it? Ooh, maybe I should do that. Maybe we should do that. You know? And so, and we probably could add different, different kinds of trainings to, to this area. But let me, let me just finish by uh, doing two things. First, asking each of us to go inside and ask yourself, if this has resonated some with you, what is my next step? And it doesn't, it's best if it's not too ambitious. You know, what is my next step? It might be to emphasize practice. It might be to do more reading. It might be, sometimes I think if 10% um, of the population gave one or two hours a week to the issues of climate change or some other issue, one or two hours a week, the world would change. I think it doesn't take more than that, but it takes that commitment. I want to close just with uh, one reflection and then a few, uh, a few short words by a few people. Um, uh, Jonah Macy, who spoke here on Monday, has for me a very, very helpful understanding of what, uh, what would bring about what she calls the great turning. And she says that, um, she says that uh, what's needed are three things. We need to have holding actions which prevent further damage. And some of us may be called to that. We also need to change our basic institutions. And some of us may be called to that. New med ways of doing medicine, new ways of education, new ways of agriculture, all, and so forth. New, new ways of economics. Maybe some of us were called to do that. And she, then she said, and there's also the transformation of consciousness. And that could be teaching yoga. That could be teaching uh, people how to have a different relation to their emotions or body. It could be doing certain kinds of psychotherapy. It could be teaching meditation. What's most important is that one follows one's heart and, uh, and 
expresses where one's gifts are, but that one makes the connection between those three levels. In other words, I might be a yoga teacher, but can I connect my yoga teaching with those other two levels? And maybe I put 95% of my attention to the yoga teaching, I make the connections, and I do 5% connection with the others. That's what we need, and I don't think we need more than that. I also think of a beautiful uh, question that was given to Howard Thurman, who was the uh, African-American theologian and mystic who set up, helped set up the first interracial church in San Francisco. And towards the end of his life, he was asked uh, by a young man who was confused about what he was doing, I think this is in the 70s, what should I do? And this lifelong activist who was engaged in all sorts of projects might have said, well, we really need people with this project, or come on down and do this. He didn't say that. He said, do that which brings you alive, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. It's the other side of this. With everything I've said, I think that's very, very true. We go where we're called, where our gifts are, what makes us come alive. And I think that all coheres with all the looking at the big picture. Because it has to come really out of the deep heart and out of what we're called to do. Maybe I'll just close with... This is from Dina Metzger. This is a short poem called Song. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. So we have some time for discussion. And I have to say, before we open up discussion, that uh, I'm very much uh, also talking to myself. You know, that I, you know, I give talks, whether it's on this or on equanimity or loving kindness, and I often say, you should listen to what that guy says. <laughs> so I'm not speaking here from any other place than where you are. I just want to say that. So we have some time. Any questions, reflections, comments, observations about anything related to what, what I explored? Uh, Chris, please. I, I just wanted to say uh, there was an uh, interview with Gary Snyder in Inquiring Mind. Yeah. And Wes Nesker asked Gary Snyder, um, you know, how should we proceed? Yeah. And Snyder said, we should proceed with love. Because if we do this out of guilt or shame or fear right. or anger, it, ain't go- it isn't going to work. And the other thing... Yeah. And, uh, and seeing people who are activists. And there's another guy named Peter Dale Scott who stu- has studied under Sylvia for years, and he started peace and conflict studies at Berkeley, mm-hmm. and he's written a bunch of books. And he's another guy that's done incredible work while being joyful and, and working in the world with right. love and compassion. He was a Canadian diplomat. Right. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, I actually did a lot of work with his former wife, Maylee Scott. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that the point is beautiful that it really is the, the, the depth of the issues call for something that's sustainable for us. Yeah. June Jordan had a, had a very beautiful essay on Martin Luther King, I think. Uh, uh, and she said, it's not about running out of the house with your hair on fire. <laughs> just wanted to save you from that <laughs> possibility, but it's I think you know what's sustainable, you know what's sustainable. What you know there there, there was a very effective uh, activist named Miles Horton who set up the Highlander School, co-founder of the Highlander School in Tennessee, in the in 1932, which was one of the you know a place where tremendous work came out of. And he he entitled his uh, autobiography, which is a beautiful piece of work. The long haul. And what do we need for the long haul? 
you know, and, you know, for some of us, the long haul is 30 years, for some it's 15 years, for some it's 50 years. And what do we need for the long haul? This is, I think, where a lot of the spiritual training comes in, right? Where we need the equanimity, the balance, the grounding in love, the being in our bodies, taking care of ourselves, sustainability. And yet, so you can see, I think, with that, that is, although that has echoes, plenty of echoes with, with the Jewish prophets or Jesus or liberation theology or Gandhi or King, there's in a sense something new being called out. That would be, how do we have this sustainable action based in love, care, and joy that's also pretty firm and resolute, right? It's, it's a, actually a beautiful combination. Thank you. Please, yeah. Oh, the microphone doesn't have far to travel. <laughs> I'm just, uh, is this on? I'm thinking about translating this to the youngest in our population. Yeah. And as a retired kindergarten teacher, thinking about about how this could become more more specific. Yeah. In the schools, without you know, without a without preaching to young children about what they should do. Right. Or or without fear. I remember there was a time when we all taught about the rainforest and the destruction of the yeah. rainforest and how frightening that was to to the kids. I feel like they have a right to to know the joy yeah, and the beauty of the earth before um, you know, the the big concern. But what I'm I'm just sitting here and yeah. thinking, what is it that's at the heart of of what the youngest children need to know. What do they, beautiful question, isn't it? You know, and how might the educational systems change? And they're actually already changing in beautiful ways. As many of you know, you know, some of you know the Mindful Schools program, which has taught probably 20,000 elementary school kids in the Bay Area mindfulness and loving kindness. 20,000, right? And is... Um, spreading around the country. I'm, I'm going to go on Thursday to Louisville, Kentucky to teach. In Louisville, the mayor is an advocate of mindfulness. And I think this is happening. He wants the entire public school system to have training in mindfulness. Pretty amazing. And let me go just in a moment, but one or two other things. Um, there are, there are things happening. I know the middle school near where I live in Berkeley, the King Middle School, has for a long time been teaching very young children um, mediation and conflict work. <coughs> and so you, you probably have all sorts of other examples. But there are things happening. They're probably, you know, they're probably even there on the margin somewhat. But there's also, you know, there are also pe- people, a lot of places are learning different relations to the earth. You know, I was part of the program also at that same school uh, called the Edible Schoolyard, which was connected with Chez Panisse. And I was a volunteer for a period of helping the kids learn gardening, you know, in the middle school. You know, and I've been working uh, a few times this summer with a Jewish group called Urban Adama, where they have a group of kids who see, I think are 15 to 20 or so. I'm not, not positive of the age, but they're... They're teenagers who are just a little bit above who are combining meditation, urban gardening, spirituality, and social justice. And there are a group of people, and I've worked with them a few times, who are doing that. You know, so, you know, so a lot of you have influence. You can, you can help bring these things in through whatever, your, uh, your PTA or whatever. Yeah, thanks. Um, please, yeah. But a wonderful question. That, some of us may, that may be the uh, question that guides us, right? What can I do to the schools? That's a very concrete way. You don't, like I say, remember that sense of Joanna Macy's three ways of responding. It's not like all of us have to be all frontline activists. That's not how change occurs. Some of us are called to there, but some of us are called to work in the schools or to do something like that. But I, what I'm saying is make the connections. That's important. So it doesn't feel like I'm disconnected from those people who are, you know, working on the Keystone XL pipeline or something. Please, yeah. I just heard in passing recently a uh, of a medical school who are 
choosing people who are in the liberal arts yeah. more over the sciences because they understand that people will have a better bedside manner, possibly, wow. and then they can learn the science. So that was a hopeful... Uh, right, yeah, just, yeah, because, and there are all sorts of changes happening in medicine, right? Mind-body medicine and so forth, different understandings of the sources of health, which bring in more of the social dimensions and the mind-body medicine, which has been mostly excluded from more conventional medicine, right? So that's changing. These, this is where the institution is changing. I'm, you know, I've been, uh, gosh, I've spoken in the last month or two with five different uh, young doctors, actually all of them women, who are in their 30s or early 40s, who are bringing all of this into the medical field. Pretty amazing. So, good. I'm glad, I'm glad I remember those hopeful signs because it was a little bit of a downer for a while, wasn't it? Okay. Okay, please. Well, what, yeah, what, uh, I'll just add one you're piece doing. to that. Um, yeah, well, well PASTAR is one thing, and I feel very excited about that, but also I'm a pediatrician and since 1994, I've been on the faculty at UCSF for a course called The Healer's Art, which I call Care of the Soul for Medical yeah. Students. And that was piloted by Rachel Remen at UCSF, but it's now at something like 69 medical schools throughout the world. Yeah. Um, so sometimes it feels like spitting in the ocean because the whole industry of medicine is against it, but it's it's very compelling to see what can happen step by step with working with first and second year. It's, a, it's a very compelling vision, isn't it? I mean, I was, I have have had some uh, like a problem with my shoulder, and I went to see an orthopedist, and she said, "Yes, really continue your meditation. Just bring awareness to your shoulder." <laughs> <laughs> Along with uh, all of her other knowledge, right? You know, so quite. There, there are things happening, so I think this is all part of the shift. So this is, this is important to remember, isn't it? Because it, we can get a little bit stuck with the paralysis or the fear or what we named. I wanted to name those because those are things to look out for, right? We want to be mindful of those when that comes up. Oh, too much or overwhelm or stuff. And see ways to come out of that. A good way to come out of all that is to be with joy and beauty. Please, yeah. I was just going to share. Um, I've been working in the schools uh, teaching mindfulness for the last year and out in San Francisco, and I did it as a volunteer. And I think most school districts have volunteer organizations that could probably place any of us into schools. So I've just been loving it and using literacy as a way to teach mindfulness as well. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe last one, yeah. Last week you mentioned, and referred to it again, actually, yeah. um, that a, uh, the greatest, a greater challenge yeah. in, um, in activist groups than um, confronting the common enemy yeah. <laughs> is um, maintaining harmony among the yeah. members. Yeah. I'm wondering if you have a source for that. Is that your own observation, or is that a collective... Is there a source of that fact or yeah, concept? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if there have been you know like uh, empirical studies or something like that. But I, yeah, for me, it's it's more. I guess we would say anecdotal in the sense you know it's having the just having heard it over and over again, having that experience where I gathered with spiritually minded activists and asked them, what are the issues that are on your minds, and having almost the first one come out. You know, we want to change the world, but we're not very nice to each other, right? You know, and, and that was actually part of my original uh, insight when I was in college and I was hanging out with activists. And, um, you know, I was troubled by the fact that uh, there, was, there was almost like a, um, the end justifies the means. And there was not so much attention to the means Remember, Dr. King used to say, let the means be as pure as the ends. And I, I was uncomfortable with how people were treating each other. And that was there, you know, and I was conscious of that as, what, a 19-year-old or whatever. And that, was, that really stayed with me. So I think it's more coming from a lot of common observations and, uh, rather than any, uh, you know, study or something. 
Yeah. Well, having recently witnessed a rift <laughs> yeah. between two leaders of a of a cause that yeah. that in which I participate, I've been struggling with can I how can I help <laughs> at this point. So thank you. Yeah, well, it's it's a lot. I mean, I being a, you know having taught trainings on mindful communication and also on being skillful with conflict. Those are two essential trainings. I think every organization should have training in those areas, and especially anyone who's in it for the long haul. You know, and they're, it's very accessible. They're not hard, but, but one, needs, uh, one needs training to shift the uh, typical conditioning. Yeah. Okay, so thank you for your attention. I never, you know, I never know what occurs when I bring up these themes. <laughs> but I thank you for your, your uh, openness and um, let's again, uh, let's, let's finish uh, with uh, just two things. One is I'll mention, occurred to me, uh, Suzuki Roshi said, the world is perfect as it is, and it could use a little bit of improvement. <laughs> and then, uh, again, just rest in, your, rest in the intention that's there for you right now as we, as we uh, close. And then we offer the benefits of the morning, benefits of our practice to all beings, always remembering that all beings includes us. Thank you. Thank you very kindly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.